Good morning, and thank you for joining host Cheryl Esposito for an intriguing hour of Leading Conversations. Each week, Cheryl brings together big thinkers to the Voice America Business Channel. Now here's your host, Cheryl Esposito. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Leading Conversations. I'm Cheryl Esposito, and we have a very special guest today, Paul Dudley Hart, who is former CEO of Pacific Crest Outward Bound School and currently serving as Director-at-Large for Mercy Corps, an international humanitarian aid and development organization. Paul, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We're so glad you're here. So now I understand that um, we are pretty lucky to have you here today because you just returned to U.S. soil after being away how long? Oh, about six weeks. Six weeks. And where did you travel during all that time? Oh, during that time, um, nothing terribly exotic. Um, (laughs) The U.K. and Italy, um, uh, Holland or the Netherlands. Oh, nice. And uh, South Sudan. And South Sudan, nothing terribly exotic, huh? Well, um, you have, I know, a lot of stories about your travels, and I'm sure we're going to get into some of those. Our topic today is empowering transformation, and that's one of the things that you have been about for a very long time, Paul, and I had the privilege of getting to know you a bit when you were with Pacific Crest Outward Bound School and you were CEO there, and that was all about empowering individuals through experiential learning and education. And um, it's interesting that in some of the work you're doing right now, you could almost say that it's similar to that. You know, you're teaching people to um, be self-sufficient around the world. So... Let's talk a bit about your role right now as Director at Large for Mercy Corps. Um, first, tell us what Mercy Corps does. Well, Mercy Corps is um, uh, an ING, you know, an international non-governmental organization, mm-hmm. a humanitarian aid and development organization based in or headquartered in Portland, Oregon, uh, Edinburgh, Scotland, and Hong Kong. And we um, uh, operate in about 35 countries worldwide. Most of those countries are um, emerging nations, many of them recovering from natural disaster, um, from war, or at a, a very, very early stage of development who, you know, the countries who um, have not, at least in the... For, in the uh, reasonable past, been granted many opportunities, and um, so it's uh, part of an effort to help them develop socially, economically, um, but in, in a manner that causes them to be self-reliant, that um, creates sustainable solutions, and that uh, truly empowers the people of those countries to make choices and to exercise those choices and decisions. Mm-hmm. Sounds like we could use a lot of that around the world, not just in developing countries, huh? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, even in our own country. Absolutely. Um, sometimes I think of this country as a developing country in some areas. It seems like, um, and I don't mean in, in um, physical areas, I mean more in terms of our cultural advancement or not, um, we could use some help in that area. Um, so what does your role, director at large, what does a director at large do? 
Well, it's uh, as the um, the title implies. It's uh, it's a varied role. Some parts of which are constant, and some are not. Um, the parts that are constant are that I manage our material aid program, which is providing non-monetary but material aid to the countries in which we work. Um, I'm also responsible for the coordination with those parts of um, Mercy Corps, administra- administrative parts of Mercy Corps that are overseas in Scotland and Hong Kong, mm-hmm. um, Belgium and mm-hmm. Canada. Um, I'm responsible for helping get some of our new initiatives off the ground, such as one that we are in the process of ramping up in climate change. Um, I have been very much involved in some of our strategic partnerships with some major corporations like Nike, which is using um, helping them use sports as a developmental and as an emergency recovery tool. Hmm. Um, I've also been very much involved in mergers and acquisitions, which is um, somewhat different from the classic uh, definition in that these are, are merging up with usually smaller NGOs that um, lack the type of implementation platform that uh, Mercy Corps with its scale can, can provide. Oh, great. Um, and then at other times I... Um, go to certain countries to help out in times of transition. Uh, I was a country director in Iraq uh, just after the war, and uh, so occasionally I'd go out in the field to uh, help get a program up and running or introduce a new programming a program or, or fill a gap. Wow. So not only are you traveling the world, but you are putting yourself sometimes in harm's way. Um, in a... In a very thoughtful way. I mean, we have um, some very sophisticated uh, risk management systems. Um, we're very, very fortunate in uh, our track record in that regard. And, uh, mm-hmm. and certainly we operate in some volatile places, but uh, one learns to do that with, uh, uh, certainly with minimizing risk. Right, right. So I'm curious about the, some of the strategic partnerships, um, this concept with Nike. Can you talk to that? Yes, certainly. Um, Nike is a company that has developed a very, very strong social responsibility program. And, um, you know, they take the role as a change agent and as a sort of uh, a brand icon very seriously. And they view that sports... Uh, a very important developmental tool, which I completely agree with. And there, you're right. You you find certain similarities with what we did at Outward Bound, where we used the wilderness and the outdoors as a as a way of creating sort of self-respect and self-reliance amongst young people. Well, sports is another very legitimate methodology to do that. And Nike provides us with uh, a very, very large amount of, of product, which we use in our programming, mm. and also with some support for that programming at times. Mm. So is, what's an example? Like, would you use this in Sudan when you're there? <coughs> Excuse me, yeah. Um, Sudan is a, is a very good example. Um, Sudan is, uh, South Sudan is a region that is emerged from a civil war that started in 1954 and ended up in a peace agreement about uh, three years ago. 
and that is now in a sort of a status of uh, awaiting a, um, uh, a vote in the year 2011 as to whether it will remain a part of um, Sudan proper or will become an independent or a quasi-independent nation. That will be decided by referendum in 2011. Mm. But in the meanwhile, this is a country that is recovering from decades of civil war. The infrastructure yeah. is, is minimal. Um, young people have had very few advantages. Most, tr- most schools are under tamarind trees. And um, it takes a long while to reestablish an education system. But in the meanwhile, young people, as they do everywhere, need some structure, need some way of building their self-confidence, their ability to work with one another, their ability to discern and make the right choices. And so we created a program with the South Sudanese government, um, the Ministry for um, uh, Youth Sports and Culture, to um, create a program in which coaches delivered a curriculum which was based around the formation of soccer teams which later competed in tournaments. Hmm. But a part of that curriculum was um, AIDS education. Oh, great. Teaching young people about the dangers of AIDS, teaching them about how they could protect themselves, how they could look after themselves, not only themselves but others and actors. Um, sort of uh, participating members of the community. It was about a sense of community and also mm. about how to live in a post-conflict environment and um, how to avoid conflict, how to manage conflicts, and how to um, start living in a more stable, sustainable environment, which is uh, uh, very much an alien concept because very few people in that country have experienced it. Right. With half of the population having, uh, more or less half of the population having remained in the country in the Civil War, and another large section of the population who became refugees in neighboring countries for a number of years were now returning. So you've also got this mix of returnees and people who stayed and all of the issues and conflicts that sometimes arise from that type of situation. Right. What are some of those issues? Oh, as an example, uh, families and particularly um, young men who stayed in the country and who participated in um, the armed services and who were the, uh, um, you know, the many of them child soldiers, um, right. you know, uh, didn't have much of an advantage of an education. Many of the refugees did have that advantage, whether it was in uh-huh. Kenya or Uganda, and many of the uh, refugee settlements had school systems. So uh, to some degree, you have a situation where returnees sometimes have an advantage of education, uh-huh. which can seem a little dis- displacing to those who stayed. Uh-huh. Um, and the meanwhile, it's the pragmatic issue that, um, you know, there are jobs that need to be filled and there are functions that need to be performed that can best be performed by people with education. So how do you uh, how do you resolve that inequity without uh, giving rise to further resentment and conflict? Right, right. And so it sounds like um, the whole concept of empowerment is really important here. It's about teaching um, the people there to do it themselves so that when you leave, they can still do it. Exactly. Everything that we do um, is sort of um, 
done on an assumption of planned obsolescence, that our job is to replace right. ourselves with local NGOs right. who will fulfill that same function. So, right. you know, our job is to inspire. Yeah. Our job is to demonstrate. Our job is to provide mm-hmm. funding and means. But our job is not to prescribe solutions. The solutions have to be those that are arrived at within the community. If, if you don't do that, then there is a failure to, to empower. Interesting. And so what kind of um, reaction or response do you get when you first go in, typically? Um, widely varied. Yes. Um, in some countries and instances, you're treated with suspicion. Uh-huh. In other countries, you're treated in a very welcoming way. It depends very much on the local history and situation. Um, uh, very often, early on in your presence in the country, you will have a sort of uh, a relief and recovery period where you're providing some very tangible assets to the community to rebuild an orphanage or a school or a water system, uh, you know, restoring water and sanitation services, whatever. Those, um, those functions give you the credibility of action which gives you a basis or a platform of credibility upon which you can open the larger issues um, to discuss with the, with the community about what they want for themselves. And the conditions are that in those discussions, nobody is excluded from, uh, from the discussion or the room in which the discussion is taking place on the basis of tribe, gender, ethnicity, whatever. We have much more to talk about with Paul Dudley Hart when we come right back. The bottom line in business talk. Voice America Business. Are you ready to become a global citizen of the world? What would it be like to share your future with people of all ages from around the world who have one major thing in common? A commitment to make a difference with no language, religion, or age barriers. Make a difference in this world. Come to Bali this summer for an experience of a lifetime. Awakening Global Action, a seven-day gathering that will change your world. Call 866-458-2254 or visit our website at www.baliinstitute.org. You are the leader the world has been waiting for. Call today. Are you looking for a unique perspective on today's market from an experienced economist? Well, look no further. Listen to The Economic Contrarian with host Mike Norman every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time on Business America Radio. Mike and his guests will discuss new trends in the marketplace as well as emerging companies and opportunities. So if you want in-depth analysis from a contrarian point of view, don't miss The Economic Contrarian Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time right here on BusinessAmericaRadio.com. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business, this is Voice America Business. 
We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. And we're back speaking with Paul Dudley Hart today, Director at Large for Mercy Corps. So, Paul, we were speaking about how empowering transformation in um, developing countries and in situations of conflict sometimes is a challenge. I'm wondering, how does Mercy Corps decide where to go and where to put its resources? Um, A number of factors. First of all, there has to be a situation in which we think we can achieve some leverage. There has to be um, a change moment. The change moment can be the the end of a war. The change moment can be a post-disaster situation. For instance, after a natural disaster, there's often a a sort of a null point, a a rebooting of social systems and attitudes and behaviors. you know, it's it's a tragic thing, but a community that has been traumatized, it's it's like the calm after a storm. Mm. That calm can sometimes be used to introduce new methods, new means, and new dialogue principally. And again, it's not about prescribed solutions, but it's about creating a dialogue on a different frequency and a dialogue in which people are heard and, and um, learn how to make better decisions collectively and inclusively mm-hmm. uh, and ones that serve the entire community rather than subsets of it. Mm-hmm. Well, is it a situation where Mercy Corps has um, a group, say a strategy group or a, a group of people who say, okay, this is an area where we can make a difference, let's go? Or is does the government of a country call you and say help? Or where does it come from? Um, it usually comes from uh, an event which um, denotes an opportunity for us. Um, we then look at uh, a few pragmatic things. Who else is there and on the ground? Is there a need for us? Mm-hmm. Okay. Are there already other NGOs on the ground who are doing a perfectly good job? Mm-hmm. And there's no point in going anywhere to sort of create competition or overcrowding. Right. Um, but in many, many cases, um, the, the problem is the opposite, that uh, even with a number of players, um, there, is not an, there are not enough assets, there's not enough support to go around. And there the trick is to, is to make sure that it's well coordinated, that the different agencies who are responding are talking to one another and coordinating. And I think our community has become much better at that. And then also you've got to look at, um, you know, is this a situation which is going to allow an opportunity? Is, is the local government going to allow you to work? And, you know, there's a big variable there from sure. you know some countries welcoming you with open arms and some countries who you know may be a little more circumspect but recognize that there are very urgent needs and are willing to make the concession of allowing an NGO or an international NGO or a group of NGOs to come in and, and meet those needs hmm. because and you know even even governments that are not functioning very well the needs of their people are still real and they still need to be met, and they can't always be met with the assets on hand. Right, right. In um, 2004, when the tsunami occurred in Sri Lanka, um, it, there was so much press 
here in the U.S. Um, about how many relief organizations descended upon that area and that there was so little coordination and that a lot of things, even with all of the help, um, so many things were not getting done. Were you there? I was not in Sri Lanka. I was in um, in Aceh um, a short while after the tsunami, but I was not in Sri Lanka, no. Mm-hmm. And what did, when you were in Aceh, what did you see? Oh, I think there was... There was very good coordination for the most part. Um, you know, what happens is that when a disaster like that happens, the, um, the local country directors of the local um, NGOs or of the international NGOs based in that country, plus the, you know, regular funding agencies, whether from Europe or the United States or the um, international agencies such as the UN, um, all dialogue very quickly and then, you know, sort of decide who's going to do what and where. Mm. And, um, you know, I think that by and large, um, in both Sri Lanka and in um, Indonesia, things, you know, a huge amount of aid flowed very quickly and very meaningfully. Right. Did some things get stuck in the pipe? Yes. Were there some uh, sort of conflicts? Were there some um, duplications of effort? Yes, but I would say they were, you know, a very, very small and exceptional few. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, those, uh, you know, as is often the case, those make the stories. Right. And I think the other thing is that there is also a tremendous amount of pressure where, as you remember, there was a lot of press about, you know, so much has been given, but only so much has been spent. Yes. Well, money can only be spent responsibly at a certain rate. And a recovery doesn't take three months. In the mm. case of uh, Bandachi or in Sri Lanka, it takes multi-years. Yes. So I think that you see... Uh, you know, a lag in the beginning as people bring their assets to bear, then you see a very strong curve of spending as it increases to meet the immediate needs. And then it plateaus, and it stays at that plateau for quite some time. And I think that one of the most difficult uh, or most important messages to communicate at those times is it's the long haul. What happens two, three years from now is almost as important as what happens in the first two or three months. Right, right. It makes me think about um, just organizations in general, profit and nonprofit, um, as they are trying to make anything happen. I mean, even if it's something as simple as rolling out a new product or um, creating a new culture in the organization or trying to um, make um, the organization a worthwhile place to be for employees, uh, very often the focus is on what's happening right now and not what the long-term view is. And you have been a leader in organizations, um, many more than simply um, the CEO of Pacific Crest Outward Bound School. You have been in many, many organizations, and you've also consulted to organizations. And I'm wondering um, what your perspective is on, you know, what is it, how do we get organizations, people in organizations, to begin to take a longer view? Oh, that's a, you know, that's a, that's a huge question. Um, you know, I think that um, a lot of it has to be clarity around strategy rather than 
sort of playing to the audience. Um, you know, I think um, a huge part in my own experience is is taking the time to manage expectations appropriately. You know, it's always hard, particularly when there is an ur- urgency or a crisis afoot, to take the time out to communicate clearly and thoughtfully about what the game plan is and why it is the way it is. Um, you know, it's easy to spring into action. It's more difficult to rapidly come up with um, a strategy for action and then take the time to communicate it thoughtfully. And I think that's that's one of the things where we as an agency and I think a num- number of other agencies have really um, put a fair amount of funding into that communications function because, you know, you, you absolutely pay for it if you don't do that. And, and then I think the thing, the other issue is, is to make sure that um, communication within management is clear. Um, you know, the, the human being or most human beings are natural, by, uh, helpful by, by nature. And um, that help is, uh, in most circumstances, a great assistance, but it can also be a hindrance. And I know particularly working in crises, um, it's easy to end up with a blizzard of suggestion with no differentiation between direction and suggestion. Mm. And, and that differentiation is essential to any manager who is managing close to the ground. Uh, say that again. No differentiation between suggestion and direction. And direction. For instance, if you are um, an outward bound instructor who is sort of calling in to say that there are problems on his or her course, or if you're a humanitarian aid agency manager who is managing a major crisis somewhere, and um, you know. There are a lot of uh, there are a lot of communication ports open to you, all of them trying to be helpful, and and much of that suggestion is very helpful. But there are a few things that usually um, those with more experience or those with the perspective of distance may say, you know, all of this suggestion is good, but those are the, these are the two or three things that must happen. Mm. And that clarity is not always there. And that, if you're managing a crisis of any nature, is one of the, is probably the most helpful thing that management can give to you. Right. Is to say, you know, use your judgment because we in our agency are a, a very decentralized organization. The person on the ground is at the top of the pyramid. Right. But even with that, you want to say, within this emergency response, within this disaster, we really want to make sure we get A, B, and C right. And, you know, how you do that, the, stra- the tactics that you use to achieve that are up to you. And the other suggestions that you may receive, you can incorporate according to your judge- judgment. But these are the things that we view as essential. And then if the manager disagrees with them, they can come back with that. But at least you've given them that differentiation because unless you do that, you're usually in most cases looking into a blizzard of suggestion and somewhat blinded by it. Well, it sounds a lot like uh, FEMA and Katrina. Yeah, very much. Yeah, very much so. We have more to talk about. We'll be back in just a moment. Remember, remember, my 
Fresh, dynamic, and totally prepared for continuing business education. Business Talk Radio. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. Are you ready to become a global citizen of the world? What would it be like to share your future with people of all ages from around the world who have one major thing in common? A commitment to make a difference with no language, religion, or age barriers. Make a difference in this world. Come to Bali this summer for an experience of a lifetime. Awakening Global Action, a seven-day gathering that will change your world. Call 866-458-2254 or visit our website at www.baliinstitute.org. You are the leaders the world has been waiting for. Call today. Growing a business successfully not only requires increased sales, but profitable sales. Over 80% of small businesses will fail to do this in the first five years. On Acorns to Oaks, Growing Your Small Business with Tom Long, he will share his years of business experience to maximize profitability and ensure longevity and sustainability. Broadcasting every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific, Acorns to Oaks, Growing Your Small Business provides insight into key areas of business, coordination of management, finance, operations, time management, management, people, and marketing, as well as sales. Tune in and learn how to grow your business into that mighty oak every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Business. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Listen wherever you are. 24-hour business and financial news. Solid, focused, and informed. The leader in business talk. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. We're back and speaking with Paul Dudley Hart today. Paul, you have had a, quite an interesting life. As I was reading some of uh, your history, um, you have spent time living in many interesting places on this planet. And um, my guess is it's given you a pretty deep appreciation for um, life on this planet and, and kind of the magic and the wonder of nature in this world. Um, and it's it's interesting because your work has taken you from actually working with the elements of the earth to, as I see it today, um, working very much with the people within the elements of the earth. So can you give us just uh, highlights of a couple of your early experiences? You were in Antarctica. You were down the Galapagos. I mean, you've done amazing things. Do you have any favorite stories? Oh, um Oh, I could bore you for ages. Um, <laughs> but I think that um, you're right. There was a transition from one to the other. I um, grew up in England and went off to boarding school when I was seven and was there ten years, um, which was sort of a, a rather harsh Lord of the Flies 
existence, but really? also a very real one. Um, and it, uh, through perhaps some, you know, less than perfect means, sort of taught one self-reliance. But oh. I was a terrible student, and um, much later in life, when I had my daughter um, uh, analyzed by an education psychiatrist, I asked if I could do a test along with her and uh, because she was suspected of having ADD and the doctor uh-huh. told my daughter that he um, was sorry to tell her that she was about a four and that she, there were some tools that she could use to offset it. But um, And she said, how about my dad? And he said, well, he's an 8.5. <gasps> so I went to sea when I was 17, went off to Australia and uh, spent about four and a half years living probably the most idyllic life any young man could wish for, which was doing underwater filming on a sailing ship all over the Pacific. Oh, great. And then after that, ended up going to the Antarctic for 10 years, working with the National Science Foundation, um, running an oceanographic research program, doing the first sort of modern systematic survey of the Antarctic Oceans. Um, and it was... In that work, and then after that, at a place called the Woods, Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, where I joined the staff that, um, as administrator, that, um, you know, some of the early um, warning signals of climate change uh, came along. And were even then, in the, in the 80s, uh, pretty evident that something was going on. And, mm-hmm. and we didn't quite know to what degree, but it was certainly warranted a much higher degree of vigilance and a perhaps change um, than manifested itself. And it became clear to me that we were stalled on a political, behavioral, economic, um, social um, uh, issues rather than, you know, the problems weren't technical, they weren't scientific, and in fact, just last year, a very articulate and somewhat controversial paper called uh, The Death of Environmentalism was published, which which made that point, is that we've sort of made the mistake about it, of, of making it about the environment and not about people and behavior, mm. because it's not the environment, it's our habits and our reluctance to change them mm. and the lack of social systems to change. So that's what caused me to leave science and join Outward Bound, which was in the sort of the, uh, the lead of um, sort of behavioral change at an individual level. And I think that what I learned there, I've brought with me to Mercy Corps, where we're managing um, behavioral change at a different scale. But that, that is, at the end of the day, um, what we are. We are an organization that is committed to um, behavioral change. And that doesn't mean that people were wrong before and they'll be right, right if uh, they choose a certain formula. Right. It means that they must make responsible choices through an inclusive and transparent um, process. So that's at the core of what we do. And no, I, I feel very blessed to have had this sort of career for somebody with a short attention span with so much <laughs> change in it. But um, Well, for such a short attention span, as you say, you spent a long time in each of these roles. It wasn't like you were in and out in two months. No, no. I, I think that in each one of them it was a full cycle. And uh, certainly, you know, spending 10 years in the Antarctic was the most sort of one, uh, most extraordinary experience. And not only in sort of 
living and working in what is truly one of nature's cathedrals, but also the Antarctic was fascinating from a behavioral point of view. You know, we all live within these exoskeletons of, of our vanity, our pride, or whatever, and when you live at such close quarters with somebody, with a group of people, for a long time, that exoskeleton sort of uh, melts away, and both the devils and the virtues that lurk within become evident, and it's not an area where you can send people home if they don't work out. So it's a, it's a very exacting and very real school of management, too. And, mm-hmm. and I've always been grateful for that experience. What was your biggest challenge there? Um, the biggest challenge was just um, getting people to commit to being reasonable, um, mm. to um, look at the challenge of, you know, we would have as many as 45 scientists um, on the ship at any one time. It was a very expensive program. There was a tremendous competition for ship time. Okay. And getting people to recognize one another's needs to adapt, to change as the expedition encountered issues and problems. Um, getting people to listen, getting people to look beyond their own um, individual goals and you know, in almost all cases, when people started looking at things collectively and in um, uh, a less opportunistic manner, the results for everybody increased. And it was, um, it was almost a predictable cycle that happened in every one of these expeditions that took anywhere between two and six months. Um, but the behavioral cycles were extraordinarily predictable. We even really? used to draw prediction graphs of where the highs and the lows would be in terms of morale and issues. And, mm-hmm. you know, and expedition by expedition, it, it played out that way. Oh, interesting. And what tools did you use to help people um, get more comfortable with looking at themselves as part of the whole and that what was good for the whole would ultimately be good for the individual? Well, I think that it's the same as as everything. One is that um, you listen far more than you speak. Mm-hmm. Um, you take yourself out of your own circumstances and try and place yourself within theirs. Um, you take the time to hear people out and have them hear each other out. And then I think the other thing that um, you know I learned very early on then is. Um, by taking credit for nothing, mm. you never trespassed on other people's territory, and people would would come to you for solutions if they knew that you were not going to sort of run off with the credit for whatever solutions were um, were arrived at. And I and I think that um, you know the the competition to take credit is a uh, is sort of. Uh, um, a cancer on mm-hmm. efficacy and and collaboration and cooperation, and often on friendship too. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I'm sure that you know in situations like that, as well as um, as you have been inside more traditional organizations, you've seen that um, oftentimes you know the organizational structure reinforces. Um, kind of blowing your own horn. It reinforces 
taking credit for sure for what you do because if you don't, then you're going to get passed over or you won't get the promotion or you won't get the plum assignment or, you know. So how do do we reconcile this, do you think, in our organizations these days? Well, I think that um, uh, more and more organizations are realizing that a sort of a silo form of management isn't very effective. Mm. The sum is always less than the parts. And I think uh, particularly young people, as they look for careers, I think that's one of the, or for career paths, I think that's one of the criteria that they really need to look at. And, you know, there's also this great diversity of, uh, of humanity that, that some people are um, lone rangers. Some people find it very hard to work in teams and yet have tremendous utility to the organization. Yeah. I think the organization's task then is to make sure that, that those talents don't have a toxic side which spreads to others in the organization. Mm. So it's, it's a matter of knowing your human resource and managing it in a way that there isn't that type of collateral damage which can take place otherwise. And so it sounds like in some of those situations, um, you know, you, it's real clear you didn't learn this in a classroom. You learned this through your own experiences, you know, all the way back in Antarctica. Um, and you have applied that as you've moved through your career. I'm wondering if this, too, um, because of your propensity for, as you called it, ADD, attention deficit disorder, um, that you weren't so focused on the learning through the books. You were more focused on experiential learning, um, and that is how um, one with ADD learns best. And I'm wondering if that gave you a real keen insight and an advantage in some ways of other people who weren't so connected to that idea? Um, I think that's very true. I think that people with um, ADD do not tend to refer to a body of fact as much to as much as the sensory perception of what's going on around them. Right. You tend to be very aware of what's going on around you. You tend to learn through interaction rather than through introspection. So, um, so yeah, I think that um, you know, until I was about 22, I was deeply ashamed of this um, learning disorder, which I didn't understand and didn't even have a name that I knew of then. Right. And then a series of circumstances happened when I was around 22 years old that made me realize that I'd been sort of uh, putting my back to this condition and sort of shouting defiance at the world instead of turning around and looking at it and finding that within it there were actually some some tremendous gifts. Yeah. And, um, and, and I think it's... Um, uh, that same thing that Kurt Hahn, the founder of Outward Bound, used to say is, you know, you've got to learn how to turn your crisis into opportunity. We're going to talk more about this with Paul Hart when we return. More and more people are starting their day with informative, focused business talk. Top experts. Today's business issues. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. 
Are you ready to become a global citizen of the world? What would it be like to share your future with people of all ages from around the world who have one major thing in common? A commitment to make a difference with no language, religion, or age barriers. Make a difference in this world. Come to Bali this summer for an experience of a lifetime. Awakening Global Action, a seven-day gathering that will change your world. Call 866-458-2254 or visit our website at www.baliinstitute.org. You are the leaders the world has been waiting for. Call today. Mr. Simplicity, Bill Jensen, is on a mission to make it easier for you to get stuff done. He wants you to do less stupid stuff so you can do more of what matters. He'll coach you as a speaker, at your event, or one-on-one. He'll help you by consulting side-by-side with your teams, and he'll teach you through his books and downloads from his website. Visit today at www.simplerwork.com. And he welcomes your emails at bill at simplerwork.com. Smarter, not harder, is your work and your life, condensed and clarified. Mr. Simplicity is on a mission to make it easier for you to get stuff done. He'll give you the tools you need to do less stupid stuff and do more of what really matters. Let's succeed together. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Business information you need from the stock market to starting and managing your business. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. We're back and we're speaking with Paul Dudley Hart today, Director at Large for Mercy Corps. Paul, you were speaking about the gifts of um, learning and how your situation personally um, allowed you to perhaps be a different kind of leader than um, what you might find in the norm. And I am wondering about um, the kind of gifts that you see yourself I mean, where did you where do you really think your gifts are best used for instance these days you know when you with mercy corps where does it show up the best for you oh i think it's in uh, resolving conflicts um, uh, i think it's in the creation of teams it's um also taking an intuitive approach to things that um, maybe sees facts in a different type of topography than uh, the majority of people Mm. do. Um, But I think also growing up with ADD, um, there comes a point where shame turns into a sort of um, a realistic humility. And realizing that you're never going to be the sort of the star PhD or, you know, the, uh, you're never going to achieve certain pinnacles. And 
I think uh, a lot of people realize that the gift is then in engaging the talents of others who have gifts other than yours. And, um, you know, for, for many, many years now, I've been responsible for managing, you know, fairly large numbers of people who are a lot smarter than I am. And you do that by serving them. And I think it comes to the, the, the core of it is the sort of the, the ethos of servant leadership. You know, your job is to, um, is to serve those that you're responsible for leading or direction. Um, and, um, and I think that that responsibility is best taken on with, with a degree of humility. Well, when I think about the young people who must be working for you at Mercy Corps, um, what kind of person is attracted to this kind of work? Who do you typically find shows up for you? I think the people who have a very strong sense of uh, some moral conscience, um, they're usually people who have a streak of adventure in them who at some point in their early life, uh, you know, pre-university, during university or post-university have gone off to discover part of the world and have been exposed to some of the inequities that exist within it and um, want to make a difference. Um, and I think that... Uh, um, that over time and experience gets tempered gets uh, tempered with a degree of pragmatism. So I would say that um, you know people who work for us tend to be pragma idealists. They're working to very idealistic goals, but with a fairly pragmatic state of mind. Are you finding that um, there is? a high number of people interested these days or not in working and doing this kind of work? Um, yes, there are a number of people. That, I mean, um, there are a huge number of people interested in doing this type of work. Um, some have, you know, realized this fairly early on in life and have... Um, uh, educated themselves appropriately for it. And others who come or who would like to enter our field who have a very different set of circumstances. Um, business people who have been very, very successful and have, you know, sort of uh, achieved a degree of security in their lives, and now they want to do something for the rest of the world. Unfortunately, in, in that category, the supply way outweighs the demand because, you know, to send somebody off to a developing nation um, you know, they need to. You need to be sure that they have skills that will play out appropriately on the ground. Right, right. Um, but uh, no, there's no shortage of people who mm -hmm. um, want to enter our field. But there, are, there is a shortage of experienced people, mm. a dire shortage, and there is a shortage of people who um, will agree to go to certain parts of the world. Yeah, yeah. Well, and. What kind of experience would you be looking for? Um, well, the average, you know, the, the the classic sort of approach path to working for Mercy Corps would be somebody who went to school and um, did economics as a minor, mm. or maybe they were even a liberal arts student. But afterwards, they 
you know, they, they or they may have taken a, you know, a, some economic courses or something like that. But then, will very often have gone into the Peace Corps, and then after the Peace Corps, they may come to work to, our, to work for us, or they may go on to graduate school and then come to work for us. But you know. Um, there's a lot of expense in sending an expatriate to the other side of the world. Oh, yeah. You know, one expatriate can pay for a lot of national staff uh, salaries. So you've got to be sure that the value proposition that that expatriate offers is equal to the investment that is made. And, you know, our agency is 3,400 people approximately of only whom or oh, between 7 and 8% are from the Western world. Mm-hmm. The rest are from the countries in which we operate. Wow, that's fascinating. How long do t- people typically work with you in that capacity? Is there a um, um, There's no set rule. Uh, uh, usually an overseas tour is two years, but we have a very small headquarters. We're a very flat organization, a very decentralized organization. So we don't, necessarily cycle people into the field and back to headquarters then back into the field. When they go into the field, they tend to go between different places in the field. Mm-hmm. So um, usually a tour in a single place is two years, and then some people may choose to stay much longer, and some people may go on somewhere else after another two year, after that two years, or go to another agency. Well, Paul, you have very clearly um, made your life matter in big ways, and we are privileged to have had you here today. We're coming to a close, and I want to um, let everybody have your website for Mercy Corps. What is it, Paul? It's www.mercycorps.org. Dot org. Great. This is wonderful. Empowering transformation. You certainly do that every day, Paul, and... um, I am really proud to say that I know you, so I appreciate this a lot. If you want to know more about Paul, you can find more information about that at the Mercy Corps site, mercycorps.org. And remember, everybody, you can join us on Fridays, 10 a.m., live, Pacific time. Or, of course, the shows are all available on the site, business.voiceamerica.com, for podcasts. I hope you all think big because the world could become a better place because of a conversation that matters. This is Cheryl Esposito. Thank you for spending this hour with Cheryl Esposito and Leading Conversations. You can listen live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you have a question or comment for Cheryl, please email her at leadingconversations at alexaconsulting.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G-C-O-N-B-E-R-S-A-T-I-O-N-S at A-L-E-X-S-A-C-O-N-S-U-L-T-I-N-G.com. See you next week.